Hello and welcome to Getting a Grip, your weekly tennis podcast. We serve up news and opinion on the world of tennis, hopefully without fault. So let us string you along with content from the beloved tennis tour all the way to grassroots tennis. The guy's just like a, a highlight reel, isn't he? Some of the some of the shots he's he's making on the run, some tweeners, some ridiculous lobs, lovely little drop shots. As we said before, his game is, you know, pretty well rounded already for someone who's only eighteen. I don't know if it's a two pronged question because what we need to talk about is not only players and their training habits but we also need to talk about the scheduling of the tour and the scheduling of the tour is something that's always been a little bit of a contentious issue welcome back to the getting a grip tennis podcast um this time instead of being thousands of miles apart i think we're only tens of miles apart in uh, the delights of devon although i think my internet connection's probably worse here than it is in Thailand, which is saying something, I suppose. I think we're about 45 miles away from each other at the moment, Ben. Exeter to Plymouth. Yep. Lovely, lovely Devon. Grey, grey Plymouth. This one, oh, yeah. Grey buildings, grey sky. Grey t-shirt as well. Grey t-shirt. Oh, grey jumper. Oh, yeah. well, see, what are the chances? I'm not in Plymouth, though. Grey issues as well. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay. so yeah, what's going on in the tennis world this week? So we've got Miami Open continuing. We're coming to the conclusion of that. We're, uh, we've obviously got the women's final later today and then the men's final tomorrow evening. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. We've got uh, recent news about Daniel Medvedev having a hernia. So he's going to have an operation on that. We're going to talk generally about kind of injuries in tennis. Shall start off in Miami. I'm not going to do my rendition of Will Smith this week, especially <laughs> given what's going on in the news. Uh, I was going to say that's a topic unto itself, but not on the topic of tennis at all. Yes, although I would say he did play quite a good role in the uh, King Richard film. If anyone hasn't seen that, very much so. Yeah, no, it's a worthwhile watch for anyone that uh, is considering it. Um, like I say, to understand why some players are the greatest certainly does shed a good light on uh, on the on the road that it takes to get there, and and the, how tough you've got to be to get there as well. Yeah. So uh, this isn't really a, a movie recommendation channel, but in that case, we can sort of talk a little. It's bit. not, but it's a tennis film, so let's say you're going to watch it. There aren't many of those. Um, anyway, yes, yeah, so Miami. What is going on in Miami? We've got Alcaraz taking on Casper Ruud in next-gen battle. Although, yes, as we said last time, Alcaraz is 18, so he is definitely next-generation. Casper Ruud, I think, is 23. So he's, he's sort of moving into that age where you expect them to just be consistent and challenging for these big titles. Um, mm. So, yeah, obviously... I've watched, well, we're watching more of Alcaraz as the recent weeks have unfolded. He's becoming more of a, a household name already, given his, yeah, excellent start to the year that he's had. Um, some incredible matches already this week. The guy's just like a, a highlight reel, isn't he? Some of the some of the shots he's, he's making on the run, some tweeners, some ridiculous lobs, lovely little drop shots. As we said before, his game is, you know, pretty well rounded already for someone who's only 18. Um, yeah, so how do we think he's he's matching up against Kasparud? I haven't seen much of 
rude, so it's hard for me to comment. But I know he has beaten the likes of Bublik and Nori and Zverev already in this tournament. So clearly, he is a force to be reckoned with. How do you how do you see this this matchup going? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I, I don't really have a comment on where it will go. If I if I was trying to bet sort of a little bit more of a guess, then I would probably go towards Alcaraz. Again, that that form is uh, a little bit too um, long term. We can see him. We can see him really stepping up in terms of his competition uh, and in terms of how he's challenging uh, everyone on the tour. So he really is a next gen challenger for sure. Um, yeah, as you were saying, like you know, Casper Ruud, he's he's twenty three. Like he's he's in full swing of it if you don't mind the pun um his career is is under good pro- progress and uh, you know he's he's had some good success already but what we obviously need to see is you know if someone's going to be uh, coming through from that era of next gen the, the previous next geners as they they really are now um we've got to see him start to take some titles and i i think that beating someone like alcaraz is a, is a good place to start with that yeah i mean i was just checking his his results in the lead up. I think Alcaraz has spent a bit more time on court. Um, he's had quite a few yeah. tough battles, even the ones that he's won in um, in straight sets, like against even against Hercatch in the previous round, like both going right to the wire in both sets. Whereas I think Kasparud's he's had a little bit more of a straightforward run. And he did have three sets against Verev, so that makes that's that's match better. practice. That's match yeah. practice. Alcaraz has played these guys maybe once or twice at most in his time uh, as a pro tennis player. Rude's been around for a little bit longer, so obviously he's going to have seen a little bit more uh, and seen different players and, and how they like to play a little bit more. So, yeah, like I say, I, I think that, you know, I'm not worried about the fact that Alcaraz spends longer on court, especially because of how young he is. Uh, he can certainly withstand the pressure. Yeah, I think the I think more pressure will be on Casper Rude in this match, <laughs> even though he's... Oh, big time. He's, I mean, he's still young, but relative to Alcaraz, you know, he's a senior guy and he's, the pressure's on him now at this stage of his career to start converting some of these, these opportunities into tournament wins. Whereas Alcaraz is, everyone knows he's like a fantastic prospect, but right now there isn't massive pressure on him to win any of these tournaments. So I think that will, that'll be in his favour a little bit. And I think the crowds probably will be more on his side, judging by what I've seen in the, in the matches in the lead up to this. Um, he actually, I think he is the, he'll be the youngest winner of the Miami Open on the men's side. Should he win? Should he win? And he's the, the youngest finalist there since Nadal, I think, in maybe it was 2005 or something. Which is it's an eerie prospect when you utter a record in the same sentence as Nadal. Um, specifically any of the top four, but you know, Nadal being a key one, especially as a compatriot. Yes, yeah, he's. I'm sure he is sort of like the benchmark for Alcaraz. For this is it, yeah. Yeah, I. I oh, what a blow that would be if he turned out to you know when he was growing up, Alcaraz wasn't Nadal's wasn't Nadal that he was a fanboy of. It was actually one of the others. Imagine that. Yeah. But I, unlikely. <laughs> given that, given the way he plays, the way he hustles around, yeah, I think it's it's fairly clear that it, it's probably Nadal. But yeah, I actually I think. In terms of predictions, I'm going to go for Alcaraz because he's like one of my favourite players or younger players already. I think I'm going to go for Alcaraz in three. What do you What do you think? What's your prediction? Rude in three. Okay, you think that slightly more experienced head 
me. I'm always going to say the experience is a is a is an important aspect, and like I say, I'm a. This is the game of tennis, less so with the men's game than the women's game, but regardless, this is the game of tennis where you know that short-term form is really important. If you see a player having a really good week, chances are that tournament is theirs. Problem is whether they can consolidate that in the long run, which, you know, like I say, that's a problem that makes players struggle a little bit more on the women's tour, but, you know, like I say, it's very much the same on the men's tour as well, especially at the moment now that we've, we've got this diminishing... Uh, hierarchy of players yeah speaking of streaks obviously on the women's side we've got Iga Swiatek in another final she hasn't Quite right. I think she's dropped a set yet in this tournament and yeah obviously she's in phenomenal form she's going to be taking over the number one spot on Monday um, mm -hmm. but she is up against the one and only Naomi Osaka well known to pretty much every, every tennis fan around um, obviously we talked last week about I think it was last week about her, or the week before about her sort of mental health kind of struggles and whatnot. Yeah. But it's nice to see her kind of getting back into the swing of things and putting a run together. I think this is her first final since the Aussie Open last year. So it's quite quite a long time now. Um, and in their previous meeting, she did she did beat Swiatek. I think it was straight sets, but two close sets. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've been following it much, but how do you kind of see this one going and... Yeah, who, who do you think is going to win this one? find it impossible to tell. Uh, I will go with the with the data and, and the fact that the form is uh, Sriantec's favour. But, um, you know, Naomi Osaka, she's always going to be a threat. And I, I think it does depend on which version of herself turns up that day. Um, because if it's the best version of herself, she's, she's quite unstoppable. So, uh, yeah, like I say, and, and, and it, as you said, it's very, very good that she's gotten to this place, you know, showing these short-term successes uh, will certainly reinforce as well mentally um, to, to start to lay down a little bit more of a long-term run. Yeah. I yeah, I think I'll, I'll probably just lean the other way just because maybe the Osaka has the mental edge based on on pre on previous matchups, but there's only been one, so it's hard to say. Like you, would, yeah, it's not really much. Logically, you would say Spionto is going to win this one. Um, mm. Playing like more aggressively now, kind of stepping into the baseline, yeah. which which I love, of course. Um, that's the kind of that's the kind of game <laughs> that I very that's much your like game, yeah, in complete like opposite to you i suppose uh, well no i i think the women's game is going more a little more that way now uh the courts are starting to slow down um uh, and women just naturally in terms of biomechanics they can they can take that ball a little bit better uh when they step up through the court sometimes because uh, they've got a more solid base to hit through so um yeah i think it's i think it's going to be entertaining to see how that develops especially as courts slow down um but no i'm, ex I'm excited to see a player like that doing really well on a women's tour yeah, I think, and they both got they both got pretty decent serves as well. So I, I mean, Aspija is gonna. One of the main things is whoever can serve better on the day and whoever can get on top of the point early. It's usually the person who comes out on top. It's the consistency. It'll always come down to the consistency. Yeah. So I think yeah, it's maybe it's more of a fifty-fifty than people think. Um, I I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. Osaka's got. She has got a lot of experience, even though she's still quite young. But obviously, Spiontek's like in the best form of anyone at the moment. So yeah, yeah. that'd be interesting to see how that goes later on today. We've just heard recently that Daniel Medvedev, of course, 
he recently got to the number one spot before relinquishing it within you know like a couple of weeks. Such as the nature of the consistency that's required, even when Djokovic is not playing, to get to the number one, <laughs> you still have to yeah. take at least the semis <clears throat> pretty much every tournament, which shows how incredible like his performances have been. Um, yeah. So yeah, obviously Medvedev is kind of he has been there or thereabouts in a lot of these tournaments, but hasn't done quite enough to get that number one spot back. I think he needed to make at least the semis of uh, the Miami Open. And now it's come out that he's had he's been struggling a little bit with a hernia in the last kind of few tournaments. Um, and he's decided to have an operation on that, which is going to rule him out for one to two months. So now it's kind of throwing into doubt his participation in the clay court season and specifically the French Open. I think if he's a smart boy, he'll probably give up the clay court season. We knew it's not his strongest game anyway. Um, and I think that, you know, if he trains right, he could really inflict some damage during the grass court season. Um, which, you know, given given his run last year, he could pick up some serious points to add to that tally and to, to challenge for the number one position again. Yeah, I think he's, he said previously that the clay the clay courts are not... Uh, exactly suited to him or it's taken him it's taken him a long time to adapt to them he's previously he struggled a lot at the French Open I think he was knocked out in the first round like a couple of times and he had like a six match losing streak or whatever until last year he made the quarters I think where he lost to Sissipas who obviously ended up making the final so obviously he made some adjustments there but it's pretty brutal on the on the body as we know so probably mm. it's a, a wise decision to to skip that and yeah as you said kind of gear up more towards Wimbledon because given the game that he's got and the serve that he's got he should be making big inroads on the, at a tournament like yeah he should make a deep run I, I think he'd be a shoe in for winning Queens this year should all go well with his recovery yeah oh, it'd be nice to see him play at Queens actually um, yeah that'd be, that'd be interesting to see uh, how he gets on in the grass court season but yes this does bring up the wider question of kind of injuries in tennis it seems like every every week we get some kind of you know report of someone having to have like an operation or taking months or whatever out because of injury quite right and yeah my general question would be is it possible to be successful in tennis i.e get to the very top win major tournaments some grand slams um without having a major injury along the way given the schedule and this the physicality of the sport but this is in itself it's a two-pronged question because what we need to talk about is not only players and their training habits but we also need to talk about the scheduling of the tour and the scheduling of the tour is something that's always been a little bit of a contentious issue um you know, what you could do is, like, the women's tour to reduce, reduce the stress. You just reduce the length of the matches, for example, especially at Grand Slams. Um, but then again, you know, you miss out on some of that entertainment aspect. Uh, I mean, again, that is its own conversation as well at Grand Slams uh, about why there's a difference between men and women uh, when it comes to the length of matches. But, yeah, when it comes to... Um, I think how hard players are training. They're, you know, they're taught, obviously, that strength and conditioning is really important. Um, the rest and recovery, the science of this has gone a long way in the past 10, 20 years. Hence why you're seeing players like uh, Federer and Nadal making such uh, great performances in their, well, in terms of sport, old age. Um, in terms of real life, or not to offend anyone, it's not old age at all. They're very young. But this is very much the point, the fact that 
science has taken us so far that we can uh, have a lot much longer lasting career um, and also much better performances throughout a match uh, is really a testament problem is the human body can only take so much uh, so the other element of that argument the science aspect of it uh, is very much um, the genetic freakery this is what I've talked about a million times before in the past. Uh, as a geneticist myself, I'm going to have to talk about it because it's what I love the most. But, you know, you've got to have a bit of genetic freakery in order to avoid these injuries. Take, no take Novak Djokovic, for example. Like, the way he moves, the agility he has. Like, you know, that, that would cause most individuals an injury. And yes, he works very hard. The strength and conditioning is great. But you see this across loads of other sports. You know, Cristiano Ronaldo, doing what he does at his age... Uh, he may not work as hard as he did when he was younger in football, but, you know, th these things these things make a very big difference as to why performances can carry. Um, so I, I think that injuries aren't inevitable, but I think that injuries are certainly, um, well, it's a big risk, because it is your life. Mm. Yeah, I suppose the longer these players are playing as well now, it sort of increases the likelihood that you will pick up and an injury at some point. Quite right. Even even Quite Djokovic, right. even Djokovic has had um he's had elbow injuries before, he had to change oh, yeah. his service action because of that. So whether that was like a technical thing or a physical thing is hard to say. But yeah, like Federer's had I mean everyone thinks Federer he's got like he's so rhythmical and smooth and elegant, but he's had, you know, quite a few knee injuries now. Obviously he is getting older, so yeah. more likely, but he even five six years ago i think he had a knee injury or yeah i think it was a knee injury so even players that supposedly have you know these games that are very kind of easy on their body it's yeah it's no not, it's not the it's not true because this game like tennis is <laughs> brutal in terms of the, the the load and like the lateral forces that your body experiences i'd actually love to do like a like a, a video or something with biomechanists to kind of look at the loads that go through players' bodies, because I'm sure... It's I think some of that has been done before. I'm not entirely sure where that footage would be, and that's certainly something we could always find and have a chat about. You know, the biomechanics yeah. of tennis in its own episode would certainly be a, a very good topic. But yeah, no, as you say, the, those lateral forces are the, are the biggest reason why tennis is probably one of the sports that you injure yourself most from. Um, and this is why courts are slowing down, because the faster a court is, the harder that impact is going to be as you try and go for balls. Um, so, you know, it's, it's partially for the longevity of points, so that people get more of an entertainment factor rather than, you know, straight off winners from a return or just aces constantly. Um, but part of it's the longevity of the players. And, uh, and this is why we also see in a lot of tennis clubs, you know, Astro and fake grass and, and you know, Cassand and whatnot courts. You know, it's, it's a big push for this sort of thing. It may be more expensive, but concrete is really, really dangerous for, for your joints. But this, yes, the slowing down of the courts may ease the impact on your body. But then if the points are going on for longer, then yeah. is that really like, does that just negate that? <laughs> quite possibly of injury. Yeah. it's it's a really big debate in the tennis world and I don't think that it's going to be solved and I don't think that anything will probably really change at the moment because we still have a lot of entertainment value and you still have people who are able to, to make incredible runs on a tour in the men's side of things um, so I, you know like I say it's it's just the risk you bear to do what you love and play tennis or play any sport you know, you're going to have to risk those injuries I think, yeah, I think the schedule is a, a major thing because you, 
the thing you notice yeah. a lot is when players, certainly when they get more experienced or they get older, they start managing their schedules a lot more. But then that obviously then impacts your ability to, well, at least in the rankings, make headway. Obviously, the main focus <clears> for the top players is I just want to be in prime shape for the grand slams yeah. and the end of season finals. But if you want to get to the number one, you've almost basically just got to play a ridiculous number of matches. As we saw with, if I bring up Murray again, because I know you love Murray, when he got to number one, the sheer number of matches and tournaments that he had yeah. to get there was ridiculous. And I'm sure that he won everything. exacerbated the injuries that he already had and obviously let yeah. And he obviously had to have the operation, but it's just crazy. I t it's You have to play week in, week out, yeah. and you have to make deep runs, and the only way you're going to recover is if you don't make a deep run. If you don't make that deep run, you don't get number one. Yeah, so that is, how, well, whether that's right or not, that is almost the, equ the equation that you have to balance up as a tennis player. Yeah. What do you prioritise, I suppose? If I, were to, if I were to suggest a policy that might help improve this and that that would that would merely be the scheduling that a player is allowed to commit themselves to uh, throughout a year so they could choose which periods that they go through where they're more intense if they spread it out more like i say these things should be individual choices for tennis players but you know you say you take the capacity of the tour and where someone is playing 100% of capacity and they're breaking themselves to do it, uh, like Murray very much did in his in his unstoppable year. I think maybe if you take it down to 80% and enforce that, make that a rule where you can only schedule yourself for 80% of the tour season, maybe that would help. Yeah, but then, it, then you obviously get debates over <clears throat> which tournaments are you missing, because obviously all these tournaments want the main big players there. No, they do for reasons. So then it's like you just can't win because if one one person's benefit is another person's loss. So yeah, it's finance kind of rules rules sport, not only tennis. So it's unfortunately so. Yeah, but yes, these players should have ownership and autonomy over the decisions that they make and what tournaments they right. decide to participate in. Especially if you're at the top level, you've got you know enough money to make whatever decisions you want, basically. <laughs> So, yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? It's, yeah, obviously advancements in sports science and recovery and all of that, but then schedules are increasingly more busy with obviously financial yeah. interests. It's kind of, yeah, these things that are kind of, yeah, in competition with each other, I suppose, and ultimately leading to players getting injuries. So, yeah, I don't know whether you could conclusively say, yes, it it's almost inevitable that you'll get injured if you're trying to get to the top, but it certainly is a, 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 a strong likelihood that that would happen. I think even... Oh, big time. Yeah. So, yeah, obviously all we can do is wish Medvedev a speedy recovery and hopefully this doesn't hit right. him in the, in the longer term, um, as we've seen with other injuries. Like, I think Stan had... What, what injury was? Did he have a knee injury as well? I seem to recall. I think it was knee for Stan. Yeah. It see that seems to have really like impacted his the back end of his career. So it's yeah. You just don't know how serious these injuries are going to be. Sadly. Time for a bit of tennis trivia, and we still haven't changed the name, and we're probably not going to <laughs> for a while at least. Maybe maybe we'll just rebrand with the same name, just like T20 Cricket, we'll call it TT. Who knows? Great, that is, that's truly uh, exciting stuff right there. Yeah, there you go. So here we go. Numero uno. 
So, when was the first French Open event held? Ooh. Was it 1885, 1891, 1895, or 1901? Say all four again for me, please. Certainly. 1885, 1891, 1895, and 1901. See, I know it was late 19th century, which is 1800s, which always confuses me, the fact that that's the case. I'm going to go with B, 1891. I believe that was B anyway. <laughs> and it's correct. Yes. Good start, 1891, yes. I think it was the... It was No, Wimbledon was the first of the major Grand Slams. Yeah, I think it was undoubtedly. In 87, possibly. Um, but yes, it was, it was actually originally held in the Stade Francais, which is, I think, where the rugby team play now. And it was originally mm. a men's inter-club competition. And interestingly enough, the first winner was a certain H. Briggs, who was actually a Briton who lived in Paris. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Bet you didn't know that, and I'm, I'm sure that's changed your day completely That with that new knowledge you've now... It's just, it's just nice to know that Tim Henman is further down the pecking order of Brits who could potentially win a Grand Slam. Yeah, and we don't even know the guy's first name. Doesn't even need a first there name. There you go. H. H. There you go. Says it all. <laughs> Question two, then. So we're off to a good start. Nadal became the youngest player in men's tennis to win the singles career Golden Grand Slam in 2010, aged 24. Okay. So who is the only other player, or men's player, to achieve that same feat? Is it Andre Agassi? Roger Federer, Jimmy Connors, or Bjorn Borg? So, in reverse order, that was Bjorn Borg, Jimmy Connors, you said Andre Agassi, and who was the other? Federer was the other one. Federer, I know Federer hasn't done it, because that's one of the things that's eluded him. And you haven't mentioned Djokovic, so no, that's, that's fine. So I am going to go with Andre Agassi. And it's correct yes. again. How did, you, how did you manage to whittle that down? Was it a guess or did you actually kind of... I'll tell you what, okay. I'll tell you what. I, I remember there being a fact that everyone kept saying when um, Federer finally overtook Andre Agassi's uh, record at Wimbledon. I think, I can't remember when this was, this was ages ago, when he finally won more Wimbledons than Agassi had. And I remember there being a fact where people went, well, he's not the GOAT yet because he's not done this. Um, and I know that Nadal had done it, obviously, by this point, but, uh, well, I think he'd done it by that point anyway, but... Yeah, I remember Agassi having that over him. So I, I, and I was pretty sure it was something like an incredible year. So I, I just had that in the back of my mind. Very good. Yes. So yeah, I think well, Federer he has won the uh, doubles at the Olympics, but obviously he has the singles ones eluded him. He lost. To yes, I remember that. Yeah. Yep. 
after oh, that was very much after he was defeated at Wimbledon on exactly the same court yeah. in the final. So it was a nice redemption story that year. Obviously, as a Murray fan, yeah, thought we'd bring Murray back in again. Well, obviously, yes. Fan. Look at your look at your face as I mention his name. No, bubbling <laughs> <All> inside. <laughs> Question number three, then. So, in what year did prize money first become equal for men and women at a Grand Slam? Ooh. So your options are nineteen seventy three. 1978, 1985, or 1990? Oh, go for these again, please. 73, 78, 85, and 90. So it's all pre-2000. Yeah, it was actually, um, well, earlier than I You didn't tell me which Grand Slam it was, did you? No, that's going to form part of my, you know, nice little background story. That I've okay. Oh, that's a tough one. I'll go with I'll go with seventy three because that's the only number I can seem to remember from the list you just read out. <laughs> so <laughs> barely got anything out of that. I just remember you saying that. So, well, that is correct. No way. Oh, okay. I can't I can't claim to have any knowledge there, but yes, it, well, it was my turn after you last week. <laughs> yes. I th- well, I, I used logic to get my answers, so... Can I can I ask if... Uh, can I tell you which one I think it is? Which Grand Slam? Go for it. It's the US Open, isn't it? It is indeed. Yes. Yeah. So Take that for the point. It actually sort of came because of pressure from Billie Jean King and the kind of WTA <laughs> that had been set up at the time, pushing for, you know, e- well, equal rights or yeah, equal prize money. Um, and at the time, it was actually $25,000 per each draw, so it shows you wow. how far it's come. And yeah. the, do you know what the, the last Grand Slam was that introduced equal prize money? Oh, have they all done it now? Yeah. I thought it was still a problem. I, I'm going to say Wimbledon was the last one. It was. And actually, it was only in 2007 that they, they offered equal prize money. It's crazy. Uh, which is I'll yeah, be yeah, up... it's a little bit embarrassing. From Oh, very much so. Yeah. But I do understand why it was a sticking point, given the whole economy of tennis and of sport and stuff like that. So, you know, it's a discussion worth having, but um, undoubtedly it's it's great that obviously that is a a solution that we have. uh, We have that solved now because, you know, it was it was never a fair scenario. It was the big wigs at Wimbledon who were saying like, "Oh, men's tennis offers more entertainment value, brings in more crowd, yeah. and all that stuff." So they resisted. Some things, some some things matter more than the finance. Yeah, shockingly, yes. In the I wish we could tell well. Man United's representatives about that one, but <laughs> yeah, just just tell the Glazers. I'm sure they'll listen to that one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Question four. So we're on three out of three so far. You've already okay, well, matched what I thought you were going to get. So. How many did you get last week? Did you get three? Yeah, or four? three. Got three. Yeah. Three. So I could, I could, oh, I could steal a win here. No, no, no pressure. So, question four: Eleven women have saved match point before winning a Grand Slam in the Open era, but who has done it the most? And your options are Maria Sharapova, Martina Navratilova, Serena Williams, or Venus Williams. Ooh. Oh, 
So who saved match point for winning a Grand Slam the most? So it's not who saved the most match points. It's, yeah, who's won the most Grand Slams having saved a match point in that tournament. Oh. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's a tough question. Like, I haven't the foggiest here. Yeah, so if you, like, get, I don't know, you play, like, a quarterfinal, you save a match point, and then you go on to win it. That would be one. And then you have to do that again in another tournament at some point. I shall scratch my beard and hope that it will provide luck. Mm. I'm sure it will. We've had a bit of luck so far, so. Or maybe it's running out. Mm, let's go with let's go with Martina Navratilova. Get a <sighs> There it is. And <laughs> you've been exposed for your lack of knowledge. So the answer actually was Serena Williams. Martina Navratilova has Fair enough has done it before. She did it on one occasion, saved match point in a grand final. Only one. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> you know how many times Serena Williams has done it? In order to win a grand slam. Mm-hmm. So or it's more, it's more times than she hasn't done it, isn't it? I don't think so. <laughs> no? Oh, I was going to say it was like a really high number. I'll go something like seven. No, it's not that high. It's three. Oh, okay. Oh, that's depressing. You know how difficult it is to like save a match point and then go on to win that tournament. That's yeah. Nah, easy. 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 Speaking from experience, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so she did it in the Australian Open in oh three and oh five, and she did it in Wimbledon two thousand and nine. Brilliant. Well, who did Djokovic do it at one point? I'm sure he probably Nadal's probably done it. Federer's probably done it. Djokovic has done it against Federer most recently when they when they had that battle, that five set battle. Was that a US Open or something? Or oh, that was the Wimbledon. Wimbledon one, yeah. But I think yeah, the Wimbledon one. one as well. Yeah, maybe. But it's not. I mean, maybe it's not <clears> as good <throat> as you think then. But it, yeah. No, no. I'd, I'll be honest. I'd, sometimes a match is very, very tight. You know, you might be ten nine up. You've got your match point on that final tie break. Um, yeah, like like I say, it can always swing both ways when he gets that point. So. Yeah, I think we'll be seeing more of them with the Grand Slam changes, the rule changes. We'll be seeing more of them. Very good. hopefully bringing in topical things. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Applying my knowledge. Okay, here we go. So the last question. This is to take the highest score so far in any quiz. It's a bit of a. I mean, you could probably call it a slightly left field. Obviously, I couldn't do a gripped question, but I've done a racket-based question. Lovely. So, which American tennis player popularized metal rackets by using the Wilson T2000? Oh. Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, Pete Sampras, or Andre Agassi? So I think I have an answer. We're, we're looking at kind of, yeah, this <clears throat> kind of era. Mainly, I think I have an answer. I'm either woefully wrong, or I actually have a bit of knowledge here. Is it Jimmy Connors? It is. Yes. Well done. Four out of five. He's done it. He's done it. <laughs> oh, that's a first. That is a first. The <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> Be out of the town tonight celebrating. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> how did you how did you know that? You actually 
come across that? I, I do remember there being something about, uh, I'll be honest actually, uh, I've been reading up a little bit on the history of Wilson recently, um, largely because um, we've been uh, we've been tempted to some contracts at Bovi with uh, Wilson for coaching and stuff like that um, as a result of uh, a very nice company. I'm not going to mention their names yet, but when we're in partnership with them, I will be uh, very happy to uh, talk about them quite a bit more. But um, like I say, it's a, it's a good local partnership, uh, which actually brings us closer to a, a worldwide uh, tennis organization. So, yeah, like I say, I think, um, yeah, like I said, I just, I'd, I'd worked it out from, you know, having a bit of Wilson knowledge, but, no, I'm very. I know that it was the '80s time that obviously that sort of racket was popularised. Um, yeah, and like I say, not all of those answers were all '80s players. I don't think were they? Um, no, a couple of. Well, yeah, Sampras is sort of leading more into the. 90s, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was actually a stainless steel racket originally made by René Lacoste in 1953, and it was released by Wilson in 1967, and. Connors used it for about 18 years and he won the US wow. Open in 82 I think or 83 um, but you could probably say that Billie Jean King maybe was the first kind of major player to use it yeah. on the tour but Connors was kind of the one that pushed it into yeah into more of the public consciousness but that was interesting him using that racket against you know, the traditional wooden rackets. And then towards the end, he was playing against players with graphite rackets. Yeah. So it sort of spanned the kind of two eras, so to speak, of tennis rackets, which I thought was quite interesting. But yeah, good knowledge. I thought you were going to say it came from your um, your little history of tennis book that you've got. No, 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 no. No, I'm going to probably start using a blade soon, so... Mm, it kind of, kind of partially should do that, so... We might be Blade Brothers. Oh not God! I'm, I'm immediately going to not now have one because I do not want that title. <laughs> and we we wear the wear the same kit most of the time as well. So. Do we? We always turn up in like the same colour T-shirt when we play. It was like, well, yeah. If we're playing as pairs, then yeah, that kind of makes sense, you know. <laughs> wear the set, yeah, yes, same kit, same tennis racket. That's that's how we're going to intimidate opponents. Really, fa yeah, yeah, phase them out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Before we proceed oh it's your serve ben i'm merlin actually <laughs> the one with the beard the guy who looks old that that one. oh right that's a cheap <laughs> shot that is a cheap shot right well i think that's podcast over <laughs> yeah that's it we're shutting down it was, it was a fun five episodes yes yeah. okay so yeah that wraps it up for this week well done to Merlin on getting solid four out of five there. Um, if you have enjoyed the podcast, then please give it a follow if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And obviously, if you're on YouTube, give it a like, subscribe and share, do all that good stuff if you feel like doing it. See you next time. <laughs>